Hey everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast, very special edition. We have a, uh, a very handsome guest today uh, in studio via Skype. Uh, our friend Sky Jitani is uh, is here with us. He is back with us, and if you've ever seen him, he is he has an incredible haircut. He is in, incredibly good looking. Um, he and I actually knew each other a bit at, at college, Miami of Ohio. Um, now he is kind of a um, world famous, and uh, I sit in his beautifully sh- uh, his beautifully shaped shadow. Uh, we are so grateful, Sky. Hello, good morning. Great to be with you, Mike. Great to. If I recall, you you pioneered this haircut ahead of me back in college. (laughs) You were getting getting close. You know, one of the great tragedies of my life, Sky, was the realization that uh, I I was. um, I I think I was twenty when I realized there was a patch in, in the back and there was creeping in the front and. There was a, a deep urgency to find a, a mate before uh, before that that happened, which I failed at miserably. Well, you know, I actually succeeded because I I had this very narrow window of time between as kind of an adolescent, I was I was really chubby and braces, glasses, like I had every nerve perfect, thing perfect. Going on. And then same thing in college, I began to realize I was losing my hair, oh, so man. I had this very narrow window. To, to find a mate and, and pass on my DNA and kind of survive the evolutionary test. And, and, I, and I passed, and I'm really grateful because I've, it's been downhill since I was about 24. <laughs> now, see, I've gone in reverse. I used to be skinny. And, and so it's, it's, um, it, it, my poor wife, I think, got sucked into a false promise because the man she married was... Uh, was was relatively skinny and had just a, a bit of hair still hanging on, and uh, and neither of those things are true. However, she says my personality makes me better looking, which you know uh, is kind of disappointing. Now, um, Sky, I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, last time we talked, we had a great great response. Um, loved uh, our discussion, and you are. Uh, obviously a very busy man. One of the things I, I want to let people know is you, you offer a daily devotional that, um, I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to do um, every day and uh, to have great content um, and thoughtful co- sorts of insights. I really, really appreciate that. How do people sign up for that if they're interested? Yeah, they can get it at withgoddaily.com. Nice. Um, and the way it's set up is anybody who makes a contribution of any amount to my ministry to support me as little as $2 gets signed up for the daily devotional. However, if, if uh, somebody doesn't want to pay for it, you just send us your email. We'll put you on the list for free. But that's kind of the way we help support my operation because I'm mostly independent, although connected to some uh, important denomination ministry kind of frameworks. But the, the devotional has become a, a really good discipline for me as a writer and as a communicator. Uh, and it's become a, a critical way of supporting myself in in my role now. Yeah, no, we definitely encourage people to check that out. And then um, you're you're the co-host of a very very successful. You were pod- when did you guys start podcasting? You, you know, and crazy. Phil. It was it was over six years ago. Yeah, that, before everyone had a podcast, you were there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call us like you know the Neil Armstrong of, of podcasts or anything. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> And it started purely as a hobby. It was just something Phil and I enjoyed doing. And actually, we would go out to lunch 
maybe once a week as friends and just talk family and faith and, and work. And, and one day he says to me over lunch that he wants to start a show and he wants me to come on or be on the show. And I, I said, that'd be great. I'd be happy to be a guest. And he's like, no, no, no I want you to be on every, every show. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And, and he said, we're going to do this, exactly what we do at lunch. We're just going to talk about what we talk. It was like a Seinfeld moment. We're going to have a show about nothing. Right. And, um, and that's how it started six years ago. And I think the combination of thoughtfulness and goofiness has won an audience because those things aren't, are, are, frankly, they're both often very absent in the Christian culture. Yeah. Um, we don't do humor well, and in many cases, we don't do thoughtfulness well. And um, so, yeah, we're both shocked that it's lasted as long as it has, and um, and really grateful as I move around now the, the the podcast universe, finding folks like you and others who are doing congruent things, not just congruent in in style, but I think your perspective is very much congruent with where we're coming from, and and that's great to see that there's this emerging Christian thoughtfulness that uh, is not beholden to a lot of the, the garbage in our culture. And so, and podcast seems to be the medium where that's really taken root. Mm -hmm. How, how has the podcast world changed in the six years you've done this? Because I mean that even in the two and a half years I've been observing, uh, it has dramatically changed. So what, what have you observed over the six years? Oh, I think when we began, at least in in the, the Christian sub-universe of podcasting, <laughs> six years ago, almost everything out there was just sermons. Right, right. There was nothing special. Yeah, there wasn't anything special. And then slowly, like, I think some existing Christian radio programs started podcasting their their content just to make it more broadly available. And then, it, it in my opinion, I think there's just such a lack of content for... Gen X like us, but also millennial Christians from existing Christian media outlets, whether you're talking magazines or radio mm. websites, that they found that podcasts were the the untouched territory where they could uh, find an audience and, and make it their own. And I've been connected to other ministries, Christian media ministries, and I think so many of them are dependent on funding from an older generation that they are beholden to them and aren't addressing issues in a way that somebody under the age of 40 resonates with and therefore weren't able to really capture them. And, and in the last six years, those folks looking for that kind of perspective have found that, well, the older generation really isn't in the podcast world. We can do what we want there. Right. So that's, I think, exploded. And now you have a, an interesting spectrum of Christian podcasts that go from very progressive basically mainline liberal Christianity to neo-fundamentalism, but all <laughs> all in this um, yeah. framework that's trying to appeal to a younger generation. So th yeah. that's what I've observed as, as being new in six years. I don't know, what about you? What have you seen that's, that surprised you? Or well, uh, well, the thing, that, the thing that's been uh, very interesting is, is, like you said, I mean, outside of you and a couple of big shows, um... There, there was really, you know, there were when we when we started, it was bad Christian, liturgist, mm -hmm. you guys, um, but but it didn't seem like everybody and their and their friend had a podcast, right? I mean, so so the proliferation has been one thing, the the realization that oh, this is a very inexpensive way to communicate content, to connect with listeners, all of those sorts of things. But then I think you're absolutely right. There, there is a very deep uh, we call it instead of liberal uh, or um, 
or conservative, we kind of call it uh, deconstruction, reconstruction, kind of the yeah. similar, you know, and you know this. Um, there, we Our observation was that there was a lot of deconstructing podcasts. A lot of ooh, we can swear and we can we can talk about right. stuff no one could talk about, and 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 and, and that's fine. I mean, I've, obviously, that's part of I think what's happening to many many people as we come in, into contact with all these stories and all sorts of um, new expressions of Christianity around the world. But I but I I I didn't feel like there was a lot of reconstruction. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so what do we do now? We're, we don't just sit in skepticism and irony and whatever, what do we, where do we go? Um, and, um, and so, you know, shows like yours, hopefully shows like ours, um, I, I hope we're able to do both. You know what I mean? That there's a, there's a, there's a unique space for those of us saying, no, 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 Jesus really is, he, he really is worth following with everything you've got. Um, but, but he's been, I like your word beholden or, or, uh, he's been, um, he's been snagged by the, christian subculture in a way that kind of obscures how beautiful he really is yeah so so i think go ahead uh going back to the beholden thing and and the existing the pre-existing christian media frame uh you mentioned that podcasting is a really inexpensive way to communicate and that's obviously not true of printing a magazine or broadcasting a radio program in the old right back in the day or even doing a sermon even doing it even putting a sermon online i mean those are very expensive uh media and this is a little cynical and i I don't want to overstate the case but i think when you have a huge budget and you have a huge overhead that you have to cover which means you need a huge audience in order to sustain these ministries the easiest way to, to aggregate a large audience and this is not just true in a religious framework, it's true in politics, it's even true in, in commerce and business. The biggest way to aggregate a large audience is to uh, either, it's to make people afraid, basically. Oh, yes. To, to frighten them into the big bad thing that's out there that if yes. you engage with us, we're going to help you overcome. Or it's to make people angry. Yeah. And you see that in our cable news, for example. You know, everyone has their, their segment they're after, and it's all outrage-driven, and it's all yeah. fear-driven. You see it in our politics. I mean, and I think that's really taken hold in a lot of Christian media, because if you're not scaring people and, and making them angry, they're not going to engage, they're not going to fund, they're not going to do that. And yeah. so when we got into podcasting, uh, I don't know if we would have articulated it this way at the beginning, but our agenda became, behind the scenes, we rarely have ever said this on air, but our agenda became we want to model for, for our generation how to be a faithful follower of Jesus in a very post-Christian culture without relying on fear or anger. I love that. And and that's what we do when we sometimes choose the stories we talk about or the, the way we engage current events, media, even theology. Right. And right. as a result, no, our audience is not as big as it perhaps could be, but it doesn't need to be because right. our overhead right. is not as high as it would be if we were trying to reach you know, uh, 10 yeah. million people every day. So I, I think that's a, and it's not just true of podcasting, I think it needs to be true of the church in general that we need to be careful that we're not so ambitious and, and have such big aspirations to reach so many people that it drives us to models that are contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. Ooh, I and, love that. and I think podcasting, at least for right now, is is a tool that God has given us that 
we can faithfully engage that doesn't require us to compromise those values. Right. No, I, I, I think that's really, really insightful, man. I, um, I was shocked at one of the churches I worked for. We had, um, I don't know, we had 120 employees, maybe of eight or nine million dollar budget. Um, and we would reach maybe 8,000 different people a month. You know, and then people that would tune in online. So let's say it's 10. And um, and to do that, you know, like I said, it was 8 or $9 million budget, 20 acres of land, blah, 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 blah. Here we are. Uh, I'm not going to tell anybody what you're wearing uh, or what I'm wearing right now, but it's certainly not our most attractive gear. Um, and, you know, we spent maybe a 1000 bucks tops on equipment or whatever. And, you know, for at least on the Vox side, we have... Um, I don't know. It's and, and it's it's a relatively small podcast. It's like fifty thousand downloads a month, which you know. Let's say that. Let's say, of course, they're they're duplicates and whatever else. So let's say that's a unique audience of like twenty thousand people, for nothing, for nothing. Right. And uh, it's it's the disruptive nature of this is what's so exciting to me. It's it's what Airbnb has done or Uber has done. It's it's. Um, you don't have to own much. You can be you can be anywhere, do anything, create content, build and connect with an audience. And and I love again that that word behold and to not have the the overhead. I mean, I can't tell you how many decisions and you know this uh, in church leadership are based on budget. Absolutely. And so here, you know, you're you're doing a devotional and and we have do you guys have Patreon as well? We you do. do Patreon. Okay, yeah, we we have one. Um, it's amazing how willing people are to support stuff like this. Um, yeah, well, when you when you know that, and I've supported other other Patreon stuff, but when you know a two or five or ten dollars a month can can produce phenomenal. Con- I think perhaps the best example out there is the Bible Project. Oh my goodness! Yes, right? the, those guys in Portland, uh, Tim and John, they they've created what I think is one of the best resources for the yeah. global church in teaching the scriptures. And knowing that I can contribute to that, just a couple of dollars, and because of crowdsourcing, this amazing content can be produced. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if we talked about this last time I was on, but I, I think because of the communication revolution we are in and all the digital technology and the internet and podcasting and all this stuff, it, it is going to fundamentally change the church. Mm-hmm. As every previous communication revolution has fundamentally changed the church, the printing press. Oh, that's uh, good. Roman roads on and on. And and a lot of church leaders, I think, are in denial about this because the model that we've inherited, whether it's the one you you know had the 20 acres and the 10,000 people and the $9 million budget, or it's a smaller church of 200 with you know a small building on the corner of some country road, mm. the model we've all inherited is about 500 years old. And it, it, it was predicated on uh, coming on a Sunday morning to hear some guy lecture from the Bible for, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that model emerged was because during the Reformation, there was a high demand for scripture engagement, mm-hmm. but there was very low supply. You know, most people didn't have a copy right. of the Bible. That's most right. people could read the Bible. Most people weren't educated to understand the Bible. So they gave it to the smartest guy in town and said, we'll show up once a week and you teach it to us. Mm-hmm. And so there's a supply-demand dynamic there, and that's where we've been for 500 years. Well, now that supply-demand thing is reversed. <laughs> Because, frankly, the number of people in our culture who are really hungry for Bible engagement is going down. True. And yet, the ability to engage the Bible is easier than ever. Right. 
because of all the resources that are out there. Yeah. So why are people still showing up on Sunday morning for, for an hour or two and all the d- inconvenience that produces just to hear you lecture? Right. When they can get that content anywhere? Oh, that's good. Right? And, and I'm, there's a couple really good things about this. Number one is if people can get Bible engagement as easily as listening to your podcast or, or watching a, a Bible project video, they're not going to be inclined to come to a church where the primary act is just Bible engagement on Sunday morning, which it. then forces us to ask, what is Sunday morning for? Yes. And yes. Maybe it doesn't just have to be to hear me lecture right. from the Bible. And so I think that revolution is, is underway. Yeah. And there's a lot of churches that are not prepared to make that adjustment. There's a lot of folks who look at podcasting and all the other media that's coming out and, and they're threatened by it because mm-hmm. it's taken away from from people's commitment to their local church. And and you can either look at this as like the most devastating thing that's happening, or you can see it as the Holy Spirit is doing something new in the church and we need to be receptive and, and adjust ourselves to what he wants to do. Um, so I'm excited. I think there's a phenomenal receptivity right now. And the technology, it can, there's a danger to it, and people will totally disincarnate their faith, which is a huge problem. Yeah. But I think the opportunities outweigh the, the risks right now. So if you were, and, and uh, there's no really right answer to this, but if you were starting a church, let's say that call was put on your heart to use Christian cliche language um, and you really felt like okay I've, I've got to go do this what would it look like uh, in this new world and it, and again we're, we're holding you to nothing and it doesn't even have to be practical but um, what are ways that you would adapt to the things that we're discussing yeah there's a book that came out I don't know how many years ago maybe 10 years ago now called The Trellis and the Vine mm-hmm. you familiar with that? absolutely I forgot the author's name. I think it was two authors. Uh, anyway, the, the metaphor is really helpful. They argue that the church is like a, a trellis and a vine. So there's the organic living vine part, which is the, the community, the, the women, men, and children who've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, living in communion with God and one another and, and growing in their, in their faith and love. There's that. And then there's the trellis, which is hmm. the inorganic structure that helps the vine and supports the vine's growth. So it's the budgets and and the staff and the buildings and the programs, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And their argument is really simple. It's uh, what is basically the minimum amount of trellis that's necessary for your vine to grow in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And the trellis is necessary for the vine. But what we end up doing in a lot of our churches is we just focus on growing the trellis. And we think that the vine exists to support the growth of the trellis. You know, we need volunteers and we need their money and we need their energy. So going back to your question, when I look at where I live, let's hypothetically, if we were to start a church here, which is uh, suburban Chicago, um, it's going to look different in different communities, how Mm -hmm. much trellis is needed to support the vine. But I think where I live, there's probably minimal trellis that's really necessary. And uh, knowing that I can resource people with Bible instruction and teaching from so many great resources, including the Bible Project, I keep going. I plug them all. No, it's on. no, that's they're amazing. Yes, um, I think what people need from a Christian community right now for their growth, the trellis that they need so much more, uh, is a framework for relational connection. Hmm. There was a study that came out. I, I can't cite it in front of me, but not too long ago, saying forty percent of Americans have no friends. Mm. Like if they had a problem in their life, they wouldn't have a single person they could turn to for emotional support. Wow, forty percent, which tells you 
something about why suicide rates are are escalating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know why there's these this hunger for all. I don't even. It's a long, messy thing, but that relational connection in which um, they are known and can be known, I think, is far more important. So my my hunch is there's going to be a lot more energy around house church kind of dynamics where it's relationally driven, where you might watch that Bible project video on Ephesians to understand the book, but then you sit down together and as a community, you start hashing out, how do we apply this in our context? How do we apply this to our lives or the dynamics that we are particularly facing that, that a video can't do for us or even a podcast can't do for us? Right. Um, that kind of intimacy of growth, I think, is far more important right now than erecting a large building and having a great show. Right. And and I think there's a place for that at times. I'm not against it, but the overhead is stifling and what it takes to sustain that is really rough these days. Yeah, that's really good, man. Love it. Um, speaking of outrage um, <laughs> and, and fear, um, so the, in 2015 we had a Colorado baker uh, refuse to bake cakes for uh, a, a cake for um, was it a lesbian couple? I think it was a gay couple. Gay couple, and uh, on the grounds of religious uh, belief, right? It, it, a baking a cake for him would have represented a compromising of his Christian faith or values. Um, it, and we just had the Supreme Court kind of. Um, I, I don't know. From what little I know about jurisprudence, this seems like a very interesting uh, road they took. Uh, in ruling on this, which which doesn't give fodder to either side of the culture war, or if you look at it a different way, provides tons of fodder for either. Um, uh, you wrote a, I thought, a phenomenal article um, on your take on this, and so I'd love, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to get into a bit of your thoughts because this, I mean, this is such a great example of the culture war kind of thinking, the culture war sort of identity politics, the culture war us versus themness that is you know that is saturating social media, and really um, I think captures a lot of the hearts and minds of, of people who are trying to follow Jesus uh, that, that get hijacked in some of these in some of these things. Uh, so I'd love your thought. Uh, let's. I, I want to go through the article real quick and then have you explain. Uh, a couple of things. It, you called it five reasons the Supreme Court's Colorado Baker decision is a victory for all Americans, which I love because nobody said it was that. <laughs> every every, <laughs> you know, I I, I I follow lots of different people on Twitter and lots of people I disagree with, and so depending on who you were reading, this was the greatest thing ever, the worst thing ever, the whatever. So um, you said the first, the first reason is the decision was not determined by the presidential election in 2016. Uh, and, and what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, go back two years. There was um, a lot of energy around the fact that Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court, February, I think, of 2016, and there's this vacancy on the Supreme Court. The Republicans in Congress refused to even entertain the idea of Barack Obama appointing somebody to that seat. And so it became a, a key component in the presidential election. Whoever gets elected president is going to be filling that seat on the Supreme Court. And I heard from a lot of Christians that yeah. they didn't like Donald Trump, but they were going to vote for him 
because of the Supreme Court, yep. because of that vacancy, because that, that right. seat would be so vital in, in all these important decisions. And some of them, of course, focused on abortion. But more and more, I heard people talking about religious liberty and sometimes even mentioning this case that they knew was going to be decided soon. And and so it, it came down to this existential crisis that if we don't elect the right person, we're going to lose the world. We're going to lose the culture because of the Supreme Court. And there were liberals talking that way as well about the importance of getting Hillary Clinton elected. Right. So uh, I thought it was, and we've, we've gotten used to these close decisions, these 5-4 split decisions on a number of, of critical matters. In fact, uh, Obergefell, the, the case that legalized gay marriage nationwide was a 5-4 split decision. And yep. the Hobby Lobby case about um, Obamacare and are Christian uh, business owners required to pay for a contraception for their employees? Those are all very close decisions. But this decision was not close. It was seven to two, which means even if Hillary Clinton had won, even if she had appointed a liberal to the court, the decision still would have gone the way mm. it did in mm. favor of the Colorado Baker. And and another thing that I think a lot of Christians forget, and this gets back to the the fear-mongering in, in Christian media and from Christian political circles is that when you look at the history of the Supreme Court's decisions on issues of religious liberty, they are overwhelmingly uh, in favor of protecting religious liberty. There was a case a couple years ago about a church that fired an employee, and the employee mm -hmm. turned around and sued the church for wrongful dismissal because of, I don't know what the details were. And the Supreme Court cited nine to zero for the church. Hmm. And that means every liberal justice sided with the church because mm -hmm. the, 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 there's such a consistent uh, legal precedent that churches are exempt from employment regulations and can hire and fire people for any reason they want. Hmm. Um, another example, back in the 60s and 70s, as the civil rights movement was uh, gaining momentum and there were many states had laws against interracial marriage that mm -hmm. were then struck down by the Supreme Court. There has not been a single case of a, of a pastor or church leader being sued and, and, and um, in any way prosecuted for refusing to marry a couple that were interracial. In mm -hmm. other words, you can still be a racist and be a pastor and refuse to marry interracial people and the courts can't do anything to you. Wow. Right. It, it's a consistently strong area of law. But the fear mongering on the right tends to be, oh my goodness, if we don't if we don't hold right. this, the, the courts are against us in these matters. But here again, we see that seven to two, it was not a close vote. Um, but they called it a narrow decision. Well, that that language gets complicated. It's narrow not because of how many justices were for or against it. It was exactly. narrow because the the written decision said that this decision is specific to this case in Colorado, and it doesn't carry precedent for other cases that are going on around the country. Exactly. That's what they mean by narrow. Yes, yes. But so there was a lot of confusion it, about that. Right. There were a lot of headlines that said narrow decision by the Supreme Court, and people assumed it was razor sharp, you know, 5-4 right. split. And that's not the case. This, it, it, this case would have gone the exact same way if Donald Trump were not president. Now, why, why, why do you think it's interesting that the same justice who wrote... Um, the gay marriage ruling wrote this one. Well, my understanding is when the when the justices are gathered together and they're deliberating a case, and eventually it falls out, you know, who's on which side. The court 
collectively then chooses one justice to write the majority opinion and one justice to write the minority opinion. And there is discretion on who that should be. And sometimes it's picked because somebody feels particularly passionate about it or whatever. And so I don't know exactly why Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, was chosen to write this, but I I wonder if the court realized, okay, the the gay marriage issue is a, a very... Uh, challenging, divisive, inflammatory topic in our culture right now. <laughs> Justice Kennedy was the one who both was the swing vote to legalize gay marriage, and he wrote that decision. And a lot of gay activists kind of see him as a champion for gay rights and and celebrate him as a reason why gay marriage is now the law of the land. So I wonder if the justices says, hey, Kennedy, I think you should write this one in favor of the Colorado Baker, because it's a way of communicating to people that number one, this was not a biased decision coming from a, a, a rabid conservative and you can hold two beliefs at the same time, which is an affirmation of gay marriage and an affirmation of the legitimacy of religious beliefs. Hmm. And so it's symbolic, but I think it was really valuable <laughs> that he was the author of both of those decisions. And, and it was a shrewd and wise decision on the part of the court to have it be the same voice because yeah. it shows a unity and it's exactly what our culture needs to see right now that these two ideas can coexist in literally one person and therefore they can <laughs> they can coexist in one in one society well and that and that you write that's for for kind of reason 3 that um, that sort of unity sidesteps a lot of the us versus them stuff that's right. out there which I, yeah. I, I thought was really interesting. Exactly. And, the, um, and thus the narrow ruling was... was and, and can you explain um, a little bit about what they ruled? Like, like uh, why does the Colorado ba- Baker... Why, why did they rule in favor of him? On what basis? Yeah. Uh, this was the interesting part, is they didn't really give a victory to the religious liberty advocates because that's not exactly the premise on which they ruled and of right. course they didn't give a victory to the to the gay marriage advocates because they didn't rule in that way either what they essentially said is that when jack phillips the baker was brought before the colorado civil rights commission uh because this gay couple was essentially suing him for refusing to make his cake when he appeared before the civil rights commission a number of the colorado commissioners mocked his mocked his religion and uh, said that his refusal to bake a cake because of his Christian convictions was illegitimate and compared his beliefs to excuses for the Holocaust and for racial segregation and, mm. and mocked it, basically. And it, mm. this came from a couple of the different commissioners, but none of the commissioners objected to that sort of language being used in their hearing. And so Justice Kennedy, in his decision, said that the First Amendment of the United States Constitution uh, promises that every citizen and our and our legal decisions will be made um, irrespective of a, of a citizen's religious beliefs. In other words, you can't factor in somebody's religion when making a legal decision about them, and they will be, regardless of their religious beliefs, they will be held with equal respect before the law. Hmm. And the Supreme Court argued that it's clear that Jack Phillips was not respected by the Colorado, and his beliefs were not respected as legitimate, by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Therefore, they threw out the case because he didn't get a fair hearing, basically, because mm. there was clear bias on the part of the commissioners. Um, so 
one of the things that I think stood out in for me as I was reading through decision was Kennedy wrote that these disputes, meaning these seeming conflicts between um, gay Americans seeking services from a business and religious business owners, these disputes have to be resolved with tolerance and without undue disrespect to sincere religious beliefs and without subjecting gay persons to indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. So mm. Kennedy's saying, look, we need to respect our gay neighbors and not make it difficult for them to get the services they, they're seeking in the public square, but we also need to hold respect for our neighbors who are sincerely religious, whatever their religion may be, mm -hmm. and not mock that either. So what he's trying to say is it's not a winner-take-all, either religion or gay rights wins. We have to hold these things together, and the Colorado Commission clearly wasn't trying to do that. They weren't seeking a solution that respected everybody. They were trying to pick a winner, right? and, and that's where they fell apart. Got it. And, and one of the objections, though, I heard uh, to the way the Supreme Court made the decision was that they, they weren't dealing with the broader, larger questions. They were just kicking it down the road a little bit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you mentioned is that you, you don't see it that way. Um, you think that actually this is a, this is a, this is a reason for hope uh, in some ways. Those are, those are the words that you use. The decision represents hope for a divided country. Um, how, how so? Um, I, I think a case can be made that they are kicking the can down the road. I would disagree with that. I disagree with the reason they're kicking the can down the road. Got it. Um, I'm not a, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a legal expert, but I kind of <laughs> dabble in this stuff. Just, I, I like reading it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, so <laughs> you should listen to what I say. Um, one of the things that I think, uh, Roberts, the, 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 uh, Chief Justice understands about the court's role is that there there have been what might be considered premature decisions on the part of the Supreme Court, which caused more social upheaval than the court anticipated. And, and there's mm. probably no better example than Roe versus Wade. Mm. So back in 1973, when when the court legalized abortion nationwide, at the time there there wasn't. There wasn't a sense on the court that this was going to be a highly controversial decision. Mm -hmm. it, it was decided on the premise of privacy, that a woman should be able to do with her body what she wants and it's nobody's business. They didn't see this as a very controversial thing. But, of course, it has since exploded into one of the most divisive mm -hmm. issues in the public square, in our, in our communities, in our politics. And the courts realized afterwards, okay, maybe we, we misread that thing and, and maybe the Roe v. Wade decision was premature and we shouldn't have made such a decisive decision instead let it play out in the states as it was going and then you see that wisdom come into play on the gay marriage front you know there were a number of times where the, the Supreme Court could have ruled about gay marriage but they didn't instead they let it play out in the states and one by one different states started legalizing gay marriage and then eventually the polling showed that a majority of Americans supported gay marriage. And it wasn't until after that that the Supreme Court took it up and said, OK, we're going to legalize gay marriage because they kind of perceived that the culture was going in that direction. Right. Whereas if they had done it 10 years earlier, it would have been an explosive yeah. problem. Right. And I think that's sort of what went on here. The court realized if we make a definitive decision one way or the other, pro-gay rights or pro-religious liberty it's going to explode and it's going to just 
feed the fuel or fuel the fire of anger and controversy and divisiveness and political entrenchment and tribalism. And, it, and it's not going to be healthy for our society. Mm-hmm. So by quote unquote, kicking the can down the road, what they are doing is giving, uh, giving communities below the Supreme court, lower courts, local communities, cities, councils, states, they're giving all those smaller expressions of, of community and government an opportunity to work through this problem in a more holistic and hmm. uh, compassionate manner rather than just coming down from on high with a hammer saying, okay, every state, every community has to operate this way because thus saith the Supreme Court. And that that would end up creating just more problems than it solves. So the reason I say this is a sign of hope is I think what the justices are saying is right now this is a very contentious issue because tons of people are raising money around it on both sides. Mm-hmm. They're fighting elections on it. They're they're demonizing the other side, but maybe cooler heads can prevail if we just give them space to do this. And a Jack Phillips Baker and this gay couple and a local commission can sit down and say, "Okay, guys, we have a complicated situation. Can we all as neighbors figure out the right way to proceed that respects everybody? That's a much better. I mean, you have children. It's, It's like you're so much more happy when your kids have a conflict and they work it out themselves. Totally. Rather than calling on mom or dad to, to come in and, and make the final judicial decision of who's right and who's wrong. Like right. you want your kids to have the maturity. And I think that's what the court was saying is, Hey, stop calling mom and dad for a while. You guys figure it out. And if, if you really can't get anywhere in 10 years, maybe we'll step in. And do something. <laughs> but that's so, why I see it as a sign of hope. So what, what advice do you have for the bakers out there who um, are confronted with these sorts of issues? Yeah. This is messy because years ago when this case first kind of rose to national prominence, I wrote a couple of articles about it. Um, <laughs> and the first article I think was called um, a, a Christian Case for Gay Wedding Cakes. Nice. In which I made an argument for why if I, if I were the baker, I would have made the cake. Okay. Uh, and and I'm, I hold a traditional view of marriage, but... Um, I, I would have made things. So I made that case. And then a lot of people were upset with me. And I wrote a follow-up piece um, <laughs> arguing why I think it's appropriate that Jack Phillips, the, the man in this case, why I think it's appropriate he didn't make the cake. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, it does. it is a matter of, of, uh, of conscience, I think, on the part of the individual. Uh, it would not violate my conscience to bake that cake. It clearly did violate his conscience, and I and I believe that sincerely. I don't think there's anything duplicitous or insincere about his conviction, which is um, totally legitimate. Uh, so I think it, it is for an individual. If I'm if I was in a pastoral situation and a member of my church came to me asking, you know, should I or should I not bake the cake? Um, I would have to investigate what's going on in in this person's conscience before God and would it be a violation of their conscience to do so? But Mm -hmm. if not, I have no problem with them baking that cake. I think the more um, interesting legal kind of foundation for this, which is what they ultimately ended up doing in this case, it's actually not about religious liberty at all. It's about freedom of expression. Mm. It's about free speech. Um, I think it's wrong for the government to compel a religious citizen to create speech or any citizen for that matter to create speech that they disagree with so for example if if uh, 
I don't know if my if my wife and I were going to do a ceremony to renew our our wedding vows, and there was a Jewish singer who we wanted to hire to perform a Christian hymn at our ceremony. Should the law compel that Jewish singer to have to sing a Christian hymn that he or she doesn't believe in? Or if you are a Muslim florist and a Hindu wedding party comes to you and says, we would like you to create floral arrangements around an idol of Ganesh, this Hindu god, Mm. should a Muslim who is stridently opposed to any form of idolatry be compelled by the government to have to do that? Got it. I don't. I don't think they should. But that's a freedom of speech issue. It's a form of expression, not a matter of uh, I don't believe in gay marriage, therefore I shouldn't have to serve any gay people mm-hmm. in business. That's a that's a totally different argument, which I think is kind of silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so argument is silly. I, I think it is silly. Yeah, I don't. I don't think, um, and it's silly both on a legal front and frankly on on a theological Christian front. I think if we are only willing to serve people. <laughs> whose theology we agree with, right? W- w- then w- we have no place living anywhere outside of a, of a monastery on a mountaintop somewhere. Well, and you ignore completely the model of Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. So um, w- one of my one of the stories I appeal to from the Old Testament about this is is uh, Naaman. Good. Who, the Naaman option. I read that one too. Yeah, yeah. The, the Naaman option. So Naaman was this leper who was healed. By God and and devotes himself to the God of Israel as a result, but he was the servant of a pagan king, and and he finds himself in this dilemma. And he says, "Look, my master, this king, he worships this other god, this other idol, and he's old and he's frail, and so very often I have to help him in his worship to kneel before this god. And 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 is that okay? Because you know I'm not actually worshiping this god, but I have to help my master kneel before this god, and so I'm kind of." technically kneeling before this God, but my heart belongs to the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And and the prophet, um, Elijah says, yeah, go be at peace. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Like God knows where your heart is, mm-hmm. even though you're, and it, it's a fascinating story because it is. I think a lot of, you know, go back to the baker. Is it okay for me to bake a cake for a gay couple? I, I don't believe in gay marriage. I'm not affirming of, of homosexual unions in the way that the culture's gone, but they're asking me to bake a cake, and is that okay? And I think the name and story kind of goes, yeah, we know, the Lord knows where your heart is, and you're trying to serve your neighbor in an appropriate way. Go ahead, bake the cake. That's why it doesn't, it doesn't sting my conscience to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to reflect more on those kinds of perspectives, especially as our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian and we are still nonetheless called to love and serve our neighbors. We got to figure out how to do that when we may disagree fundamentally on some important matters rather than simply saying every time you disagree with somebody, even when you disagree strongly, it becomes a legitimate reason not to serve them. Right. Um, So, but that's a conversation we should be having within our Christian communities. I don't think there's a legal Right. argument to be made there, which is you know a whole different set of um, a truth needs to be pulled when you enter the courts. You can't just appeal to the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. <laughs> no, I think that's really good. I, I I always think there's a missional reason why you would. I mean, it's uh, it's to 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 bless. It's to um, for for the common good. It's to uh, show how Jesus is beautiful, and you know to and I'm not. I, 
I would, the, the harder article for me to have written in that case would have been why it's okay that this guy said no. Yeah. Um, that would have been the harder article for me because I'm sitting there going, my goodness, as uh, if I'm a known Jesus follower, um, then I absolutely want to be the best uh, cake baker in the world. I want to be the most ge- the, the, the most generous, the most kind, the whatever, right? Even if I disagree with people because there's a missionary sort of impulse behind that. What, um, for you, what was the case that you made about, for, about him? Was it just the conscience case? Um, it was, it was the free speech case. Oh, the expression, yep. Yeah, the case is so fascinating because when you get into the weeds of it, uh, it's very nuanced. So from my research and study, Jack Phillips told this gay couple, you know, they came into his bakery, his, his cake shop, and they wanted him to make a, a custom cake for their wedding. And he said, you know what, I... I, I'm not going to make a custom cake because I see that as a form of participating in a in a, in a ceremony that I my religious convictions disagree with. Mm-hmm. However, you're more than welcome to buy any of the cakes that are here that are on the shelf. You know, I, I so he was willing to serve them. He was willing to to sell them a cake mm-hmm. that had already been made. He just wouldn't make them an original cake because he saw that as an act of expression specifically for a same-sex marriage, whereas the cakes behind him on the shelf that he'd already made, right. he made those you know, prior to the reason right. he knew they would be, what they'd be used for. So his argument was a very nuanced one of expression. And so yeah, I think the argument I made in my article was if you, if you own a restaurant and somebody walks in and they look at the you know Mexican restaurant. You sell tacos or whatever, and they look at the menu and and they say, yeah, I'd like a, a chicken taco. And you look at them and realize, um, I think I made a joke. Oh, you're you're a Green Bay Packers fan, and I'm a Bears fan. <laughs> no way, I'm not selling you a taco. That's discrimination, right? That's that's wrong. But if you own a Mexican restaurant, and someone walks in up to the counter and says, yeah, I'd like some sushi. And you go, we don't serve sushi here. And then they turn around and sue you for not serving sushi. That's ridiculous, right? right? Because you don't sell it. So if somebody walks in and says, we want you to make a cake that says, um, hooray for gay marriage, for you to say, you know what? We don't make that cake. And we won't make that cake for anybody, straight or gay. Hmm. But you're welcome to have any cake on the shelf that we do make. That's different than... um, refusing to serve somebody because of their identity okay wow does that make sense it does it does sky dang good stuff man yeah it's very nuanced but i I think it um, is i think he was on good legal ground for his argument but there's a difference like i said between if i were to sit down with jack phillips as a brother in christ and talk through the issue of our conscience before the lord with with our neighbors that'd be one thing versus sitting down with him and an attorney to talk through what are his legal rights as an American citizen around freedom of speech and freedom of religion, I think that's a whole different conversation to have. Yeah, but the the way the culture's falling out, the the rights um, conversation will be always seen more importantly, you know, than the discipleship conversation. In other words, it seems as if uh, American Christians uh, are way more interested in their rights and their liberties than they are um, what it looks like to sacrificially love neighbor. Um, do you know what I'm saying? Like we, we've yeah. elevated. So if you're, and you're absolutely right. Those are two separate conversations, but which one's more important is, is protecting my religious liberty more important. Now, and, I, and I'm not saying this 
example fits what I'm about to say. This is a false dichotomy, absolutely granted. But, it, but the way it's presented to us is it's either you, um, you violate your, um, your religious liberty or you serve and love your neighbor. And, and what, what, does it, what does it take to get to the place where as a missionary in a, in a, in a post-Christian world, we, we adjudicate the, those two differently? In other words, my rights aren't as important as my witness. Yeah. Uh, so here, let me let me complicate things for you. All right. <laughs> Beautifully. I think a case can be made that uh, standing standing for my religious liberty or freedom of speech rights is actually probably the most loving thing I can do for my neighbor. Oh my. And okay. here's why. Okay. Let's hear it. Let's <laughs> hear this it. Is, this is not the argument you hear. I think you're absolutely right. The the argument you generally hear is. We Christians need to stand up for our rights because they're out to get us. Right. I think that is a sub-Christian ethic. Right. Completely outside the, the realm of, of what Christ has called us to. Here's a different way of saying it. All right. Uh, if, my, if there is in a, a, a violation of my religious liberty, for me to take legal action to protect that right that I have, is the best thing I can do for my neighbor because in protecting my religious liberty rights, I'm also protecting the religious liberty rights of my Muslim neighbor and my Hindu neighbor and my Jewish neighbor. And th that I think is more, I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, Russell Moore, Southern mm -hmm. Baptist, the leader of the, of the ethics and religious liberty commission, wonderful guy, great guy. There's a, there's a, he got into a, a lot of controversy a couple of years ago when his organization wrote an amicus brief to the court defending the rights of a Muslim mosque that was uh, being barred from being built in some community. And a lot of his own Southern Baptist brothers and sisters just piled onto Russell Moore for supporting this mosque and its right to be built. And, and there's, I think, a YouTube video clip of him just being blasted at this huge gathering of Southern Baptists because he was seen as, you know, betraying his cause and why he's supporting the Muslim. And Russell, you know, he's a brilliant guy and he's and he's a principled person and he gets the issues at, at, at play here. And he said, look, we can't just be about religious liberty for Christians because if we allow the government to tell a mosque that it can't be built, that same legal precedent will one day be used to tell churches they can't be built. So, you know, he, in a principled way, was standing up for religious liberty, not just for his group, but for all groups. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we are blessed to live in a country where we have freedom of speech, where we can get on a street corner and evangelize, where we can share our faith openly, where we can build a church, where we can um, bring our convictions into the public square without fear of persecution or being locked up. And, and that's an amazing gift. And that is a precious thing that ought to be protected, not just for us, but for our neighbors we disagree with. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I think you got to look a layer deeper at the motivation. I agree with you. The majority of times when, when Christians are talking about these issues, I think it is done in a self-preserving, um, inappropriately fearful, um, selfish kind of way. 
But there is a way to engage these issues, which genuinely thinks about not just what's good for me, but what really is good for my neighbor and mm-hmm. how do I help them. And and that's where I think Christians, Muslims, Jews, all kinds of religious people, we really need to band together on these legal matters and show that it's not just Christians versus gays. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is an idea that has created an open marketplace of religious ideas and expression that is beautiful and unique to the American experiment, and it's worth protecting for everybody. Oh, wow. Wow. You could write, dude, you could run a political platform on that right there. Boom. <laughs> well, I think people have. It's just not selling. Right yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's interesting, Sky, because my, my, initial, my initial thought is, yeah, but what about your gay neighbors? And, and, oh, absolutely. And, I think they should have freedom of religion and freedom of expression as well. Yeah. I, I guess I, I just, I've been so immersed in the the kind of missionary thinking to, to sit and go, well, is that, that's really the battle I want to fight right now? I mean, I, you know, if, if I'm in a, like people ask me all the time, Hey, would you officiate a gay wedding? And obviously it depends on all sorts of issues, but if, if we're dealing with two folks that I'm in relationship with that are being drawn into the kingdom, that, uh, there's a missional impulse behind, I'm open to it. In, in ways that I think make other people uncomfortable um, be, for, for the sake of uh, staying in their life, staying in their relationship, seeing that this is going to happen regardless. And um, I'd rather be a part of it than somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I think that the, 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 uh, the decision that has to be made there is not do I want to be a part or not be a part, but what part? Right. And I've had to counsel more than a few people in my um, kind of pseudo-pastoral capacity <laughs> who, who have family members that are gay and right. are, are and, and then should I attend? Uh, you know, my, my gay brother's asking me to pray at his wedding. Should I do that? You know, all, and, and to sit down and not take these cases as um, uh, kind of abstract things but to sit down with people and go well, tell me about your relationship what's mm-hmm. going to mean so i'll give you one example a friend of mine uh had a, a brother who was gay long-term partner uh they were after the legalization of gay marriage they decided to formally be married and uh, my friend was asked to pray at his brother's wedding he's not a pastor but he was asked to pray at his brother's wedding mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. his brother asked him if, if he and his wife would host the reception mm-hmm and so my friend came to me, he's like, what do I do? I, I don't know. Like, I love my brother. I even love his, his fiance, who I've known for 20 years. Like, we, we've cared for them. They know our beliefs about gay marriage and that they, they're conservative on their views of marriage. And, um, and so the conversation I ended up having with him is, you know, I, I think it would be disingenuous for you to, to stand up in front of that congregation and pray for your brother and his fiance in their marriage if you haven't had a conversation with your brother about your own beliefs on this thing and so that was number one and then I said number two if you have that conversation with your brother and there's authenticity there and honesty and he still wants you to pray at the wedding then you need to ask yourself what can you in complete sincerity pray for your brother and and his his spouse at that wedding and so he went through that process he sat down with his brother and his fiance talked through, you know, we love you guys. We, um, want to support you in every way we can. 
but as a Christian, here are my convictions about marriage. Um, how, how do you feel about it? Let's talk through. They had a really honest, um, appropriate conversation in a context of a loving relationship as brothers about that whole thing. And his brother said to him, I still want you to pray at my wedding. Mm-hmm. And he was like, great, I, I will pray. And then he came back to me and said, what do I pray? And he started composing something and he got to a place of being able to pray something that was absolutely 100% in no way violated his conscience. That was also a prayer of of genuine love and concern for an, an affirmation of mm-hmm. his brother and his brother. So, I mean, that for me, I, now I couldn't necessarily do that same thing with another person in another circumstance. Totally. Another, right? So you got to take it on a case-by-case basis. Absolutely. But would you would you have had the same counsel or would he have had the same concerns for an appropriately divorced couple? That was uh, that not, that they were now remarrying each, you know, not each other, but they were remarrying somebody different. You know, that's a great question because I bet 30 years ago that probably would have come up a whole lot more than it does. Exactly. And that and that's the bit. But I have had those conversations with some people who have held to a, a very traditional uh, view of, of divorce and remarriage. And we talked through that as well. Going all the way back to the cake maker, it does come down to what what is a violation of your conscience before God. Right. And how do we navigate that w- with good biblical instruction and theology, but also holding on to a genuine desire to love and serve the people totally. around us. But I, but I, but I think our, our consciences um, have, have changed. And in, in, your point is a brilliant example of that. 30 years yep. ago, divorce yep. would have been. Now it's just, it's not even a thing. So for me on this, so for me on this issue, it's that this is a special case of sexual sin as opposed to um, two people sleeping together. Yes, I know they're sleeping together, uh, but you know I'm going to do the wedding anyway. Or um, you know they've they've had sex before, they've repented for six months or whatever. And I mean, do you, do you see what I'm saying? There, there, this seems to be like a special case applied to gay folks that isn't applied to other. Now, now maybe there are some. I mean, you just said yes, there are people who who um, it was consistently apply that ethic. Uh, but how far, you know, if, what if the guy looks at pornography? Um, yeah. you, you know what I mean? And, and that's yeah. where, that's where I'm like, are we in the business as missionaries? Now, if it's in the church, okay, a set of uh, different questions, but as missionaries, are we in the business of, uh, of trusting conscious with conscience, conscience with what it is, uh, I'll approve of or not approve of? Right, and I totally agree that what uh, what violates our conscience changes with culture and changes with time. I mean, th- th- there are issues today that most of us don't give one neuron of thought to <laughs> that you know our ancestors or predecessors in the church oh, yeah. freaked out about. Right? Dancing. So yeah, there's lots of that. That's absolutely true. the The other thing, though, is um, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit with you. I do think there is a difference between um, a, a pastor wrestling with, do I marry this couple who's previous divorced, or do I marry this couple who where they've been living together or sleeping together, do I marry this couple where I know the guy has been involved in pornography or whatever, and do I marry a same-sex couple? All right. Because in in the in those other examples, yeah, you know, every single couple that comes before a pastor for marriage is 
full of sin, right? <laughs> right? In some form or another, they're right. all imperfect. Everything. But in those other cases, they don't represent a fundamental doctrinal redefinition of what a Christian marriage is. Okay. And although I think a case could be made that the divorce and remarriage one gets close. Yeah, that that was the one I was going to point to, was to yeah, say, well... That one gets close, which is why I think uh, we all need, those of us in roles of marrying people, need to think through carefully for ourselves, doctrinally, theologically, why or why we wouldn't participate in that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but it's pretty obvious that a marriage of two men and two women is a fundamental redefinition of what has historically and theologically and biblically been understood to be a marriage. Mm -hmm. And that isn't true of a couple, uh, an opposite sex couple who've been living together, for example. Um, there are issues there, no doubt. So I, I do think it's a little bit of apple and orange comparison here. Okay. Um, and uh, I have talked to colleagues and friends who have come down on a place of willing to officiate a same-sex marriage for many of the reasons that you've articulated. And I know others who they wouldn't even set foot in a, in a, in a, a venue where a same-sex marriage is going to happen. They wouldn't. Right. They wouldn't even be there as an attender, right? So, and then there's a whole spectrum in between. And I just think to to label somebody on one extreme or the other as either a heretic or a bigot, right, is, uh, is not helpful. Is not, is not helpful to the to the really complicated <laughs> realities that we're facing. Yeah. Oh, buddy, that's so good. Let's end on that. That. <laughs> Scott, no, no, seriously, you, you are. I really, I really, really, really appreciate your voice in this in this space. This is, um, it is, it is tough to walk a middle middle ground, and it, it's funny. I, I love that you get shot from conservative Christians and from progressive Christians. You get shot at um, or criticized uh, because that that always feels like the best space to be in, where where Jesus would be. Um, is getting shot at both. We saw that clearly in his in his ministry. Um, so proud of you. Appreciate you. Um, if you want to check out, give us your website if you would. If you want to, that's kind of the gateway to all things Sky. Correct? Yeah, I mean, there's there's my uh, my website is skyjatani.com. S K Y E J E T H A N I dot com. Or honestly, the easier place to land and, and also get all my stuff is with God Daily. Com. Okay. Beautiful. Well, brothers and sisters, thanks for tuning in. As always, we are grateful to be a part of your life and um, so thankful that you would give us uh, time and space in whatever it is you're doing today. So until next time, my friends, thanks.